Hey, it's Alex and Gabriel. And we're back with another full episode of Life on the Brink. You know, it must have been so tough without us last week as you transitioned <laughs> to our fortnightly schedule, but it has given us more time to focus on a bunch of other stuff like getting the socials up and running, putting some more website stuff in development that should be out pretty soon that we're pretty keen for. But we hope you enjoyed the bonus episode we released uh, and a whole lot of other stuff that's coming your way, including this full interview. So in this interview, we sat down with conservationist Holly Bradley and spoke all about spiny-tailed skinks or Eugenia stokesii badia. <laughs> How do you reckon I did that game? <laughs> uh, yeah, they're called Eugenia stokesii badii. Uh, and you may have noticed there's, there's three parts to that. And most species names have two parts like us, Homo sapien. Homo is the genus and sapien is the species. And that's our scientific name. These guys have three because they're not a species. They're a subspecies, just like the Whee! kangaroo island glossy black cockatoos that we talked about in episode one were. And I looked up the background of a Gurnia stokesii badii and what it means. And when I tell you I spent hours on this, <laughs> this is, I don't know who's hiding this information, but it is so hard to come by. I'm going to start with the easiest bit, the, the bit I'm most confident in, because I'm not 100% on what I've tracked down is the etymology here. <laughs> <laughs> but the middle bit, Stokesii, the species name, that's named after Admiral John Lort Stokes, who was an officer of the British Royal Navy and served on none other than the HMS Beagle, which was under the command of Robert Fitzroy at the same time that Charles Darwin made his voyage. Okay, that's way cooler than I thought it was going to be. I literally yeah. thought it was just going to have something to do with the word stoked. <laughs> <laughs> the next two took me forever. I looked Far and wide, I tracked down literature. I looked at the original museum records where these things got written in. But I'm pretty confident with the last bit, badii, like the subspecies name. I'm pretty sure that comes from the Latin badius, which means like red or yellow in color. So I'm pretty sure that's where that comes from because these lizards are that color. Uh, that makes and sense. <laughs> the bit I'm least confident in and I spent so long looking for is the first bit, the genus, which there's like <laughs> dozens of lizards in this genus. There should be a pretty well-known record of what the hell it means, Igernia, um, but there isn't. And so after looking through all these records, I just I got to the point where I gave up and just started looking through Latin and Greek dictionaries <laughs> online. And I'm pretty sure it's one of three things. The first possibility, and they're all like based on the same, like very core words. So I think I'm on the right track. But the first one is agero is Latin for carry or bear out, discharge, utter. And then there's a Roman side to it because there's a there's a nymph in Roman mythology called Agiria. And they think she was named off a Greek word, uh, which is Agiriri, I think, or Agirir, <laughs> or something like that, which means to bear out. And I, they think she's named that because of her uh, role in childbirth in the mythology. So I think it comes somewhere from that core of words between the Romans, the Greeks, and the Latins, because these lizards are some of the only lizards in the world that give birth to live young. Holy so that's what crap. I think <laughs> this is. I think Agernia stokesii badii means gives birth to live young, is named after Admiral Stotes, who was on the HMS Beagle, and is ready brown in colour. <laughs> but I'm not that sure. Was absolute journey. <laughs> <laughs> so this particular subspecies is listed as endangered by the Australian federal government. And our guest on this episode has had a really cool career leading up to her work on these Western spiny-tailed skinks. 
She started out with adorable little marsupials called honey possums, and she talks about her work with those. Uh, and she then moved into Costa Rica uh, and worked as a sloth technician, which is exactly <laughs> as cool as it sounds, and has now turned her attention to this really cool Australian lizard that you've never heard of and we've never heard of and should yep. have because it looks awesome and it, it it does awesome things. But just had never never come across it, not once. <laughs> so uh, get ready to hear about this skink's family groups, how these lizards can be particularly picky home buyers, and all about Holly's time chasing all sorts of cool animals through Costa Rica and the Australian outback. This is episode eight of Life on the Brink featuring spiny-tailed skinks and Holly Bradley. So can we start first off um, with a very basic question of what is a spiny-tailed skink? Can you give us from square one what these things look like? Sure, they're a skink. So a skink is a type of lizard that's basically a tube, so they don't have very distinct necks or heads, so they're kind of a long tube. (laughs) So they've got spiny scales all along their body, but they're really pronounced on their tail and it makes them look like a mini dinosaur. Yeah, I was going to say, I was looking at photos and I sent one to Gabe earlier and I was like, it literally looks like a baby dragon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, as close as I can get to working with dragons. Yeah, it's awesome. They they look a little bit like shingleback lizards, which I think a few people probably know. Are they, is there any close relationship there between them or is that just coincidence? Uh, Not closely related, but that's usually what I use to describe them. They look like a shingleback or a bobtail lizard, but um, with spiny scales. Yeah, yeah. And then can you sort of walk us through where they're found at the moment these days? Sure. So the particular subspecies that I'm working on just occurs um, in the Midwest of Western Australia, so a small pocket inland. And yeah, that's that's all they're restricted to. They used to be have a further distribution, but a lot of the wheat belt in Western Australia is being cleared for agriculture. So that's really narrowed their range. And so I saw that um, you speak a lot about their cultural significance to the local people. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. So that was a really exciting thing that I enjoyed as part of my project was I was able to link up with them. Um, I got invited to meet an elder, a Badimaya elder, and he told me the story of how the skinks were a totem for himself and his family. And so they have strong cultural significance And within the particular area where we met, he said he couldn't remember the last time he saw one of those skinks in the area, which was quite quite sad. So I think it's important protecting the species, not just because they're ecologically important, but also culturally important. Definitely. And and so that history then of going from that wide range and having a lot of significance to a lot of different um, groups in the area, how did it go from that stage? Was it mainly wheat that drove it into the status of them being endangered now? Yeah, so I think the original biggest issue was habitat clearing. So they lost a lot of their habitat. And now it's um, still habitat lost from things like mining, but then there are added on impacts of uh, degradation from things such as goats. So even within their habitat, it's been degraded and soil compacted, loss of vegetation, which they probably forage on. Uh, cats and foxes introduce predators things like that they're all added on issues 
Right. I um I didn't I, it was only about a couple of years ago that I found out goats are actually pretty invasive in Australia, but are they are they pretty pretty common out there? Yeah, so it did take me by surprise as well. I put um, camera traps out in the bush to see what predators are around and there's massive billy goats that just walk past the camera as well. And I'm not used to thinking them as, um, because you don't commonly see them around where you live in towns or cities, but yeah, there's there's quite a few of them. That's wild. Yeah. Um, So to to get into your background then, I mean, you're working on these lizards now, but you've had a pretty diverse background getting here um can we yeah. sort of start off with i mean where, where did conservation started and working with with animals like where did that start for you so for me it started pretty early i was talking with my mum about this yesterday and she said she, she worked in the gold fields in western australia and was a big part of rehabilitation and putting back trees in the landscape after mining. And she said on the volunteer tree planting days, I was there amongst her even as a baby strapped to her front. So from a baby, (laughs) I've been introduced to it. And so having a mum as a biologist as well, and we'd go on bushwalks and she'd teach me the names of different plants. So I grew up amongst the bush, loving the plants and animals and always knowing I wanted to be a part of protecting that. And then I did um, a degree in conservation biology and zoology at the University of Western Australia. And then my honours project, I worked on honey possums. So yes, I saw this. Can, what is a honey possum? So a honey possum is about the size of your thumb. They're quite <laughs> tiny, but they don't actually eat honey and they're not a possum. <laughs> they're <laughs> <a> tiny. <laughs> I know. (laughs) They're a tiny marsupial and they look like a mouse kind of, but a lot cuter. They've got a really long, narrow nose and a prehensile tail. And so for my studies, um, there was a newly gazetted nature reserve where um, Parks and Wildlife thought there was a population of honey possums living there. And I wanted to see how vulnerable that population was and what they were feeding on and how to better manage the reserve. The best way to catch them is through pitfall traps. So the little possums climb down from the trees, run along the sand, and then fall into the pitfall bucket. Hey, guys. Cutting in for the first time this episode, just to say that Holly's about to mention this thing called torpor. It's pretty common in uh, in a lot of different animal species, so we should we should probably cover it. Yeah. <laughs> Hibernation, which is what most of us have been exposed to, is a type of torpor which just occurs over winter months for an animal uh, but torpor or it's sometimes called just dormancy is when an animal or a plant drops their activity and their metabolic rate and just sort of shuts down basically for a while it can last for less than a day it can be a few days it can apparently be a, a couple of years uh, and you just subsist for a while and wait for the weather to get better outside yeah think like voluntary coma <laughs> yeah pretty much and we'll, uh, we'll let Holly get to it with probably one of the most adorable examples of torpor. And um, sometimes, because it gets quite cold in, cold in the mornings, the possums go into torpor. And so you have to warm them up, up in your hands or close to your body until they can slowly wake up. It's quite adorable. Oh, that sounds like just then- a horrible experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they're, they're quite adorable. And then... Um, on average, they're seven grams was about the size um, of their weight. So they're wow. tiny, tiny animals. That's awesome. 
It's so a, that was good fun. <laughs> yeah, I imagine so. <laughs> it's a it's a bit of a I was going to say going from that back to spiny tailed skinks is a bit of a transition. How did you how did you make that switch? Yeah, after honours, I actually um, I went overseas and became a sloth technician, which is not the usual job title. <laughs> and so I was part of the first research into seeing when you rehabilitate a sloth and put them back in the wild, do they actually survive? We had radio collars um, around their neck. And so with that, we had a big antenna and could follow them through the canopy and we recorded their behaviours and did the same for wild sloths. So then we could compare, are they doing the same things, eating from the same plants? Do they behave like wild sloths once they're out there? That's so cool. I've, I've got to ask, are they, are they just as slow moving as they're portrayed in like Zootopia? <laughs> that is actually a good question because I came, came from the honours fieldwork was really fun with the honey possums, but it was quite hard work. I was, you'd have to be out there from 4am because you have to clear pitfall traps within three hours of sunrise. And then you have to check them again in the afternoon to make sure you don't get any bycatch of reptiles during the day. So I'd get home after sunrise and I'd be doing that continuously. And that was quite hard work. So when I got the sloth job, I was like, this should be easy. I mean, you're watching a sloth. It can't move far. It can't do much. But then, but then um, when it rains, there's something happens in the sloth brain and they go crazy. They move really fast through the canopy. And I had no idea. And the radio tracking equipment, you can't get wet. So you're busy trying to squint up into the rain, not get your equipment wet, follow where the sloth's going and the jungle's on the side of a mountain. So you're bashing through the jungle, trying not to slide down this mountain and follow this sloth that's decided. It can't just curl up in a ball while it's raining. It's got to run as fast as it can through the canopies. <laughs> not as slow as I'd hoped. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> One of my favourite favorite days or times in the jungle, were done. we had a massive head torch that kind of looked like a Dalek <laughs> light <laughs> and because we had to get to the top of um, a massive the canopy to see the sloth. So we had a massive light shining from our forehead. Hey, it's us. So usually when we come in with these little voiceover parts, we're giving some more context on something or summarizing something or explaining something. Alex, you reckon we need to explain <laughs> the word Dalek. Well, okay. So <laughs> it's common. I feel like it's common knowledge, but then there's also going to be some people that aren't like us and aren't giant Are you nerds? saying there are people who aren't <laughs> Doctor Who fans in the world? I feel like... Dalek surely is a universal truth. I don't know. I, like, oh, maybe. What's a Dalek? <laughs> well, a Dalek is this, they're these alien creatures from the show Doctor Who. They're basically the Doctor's mortal enemies and they are these little octopus looking aliens, but they sit in these robotic suits and they've got this big antenna looking eyeball thing that she's referring to when she talks about her head torch you might have come across them because they're pretty famous for the word exterminate <laughs> yeah if you ever wanted to have the word dialect mansplain to you you're welcome we'll hand the floor back to holy other so you'd have grasshoppers flying into your light stream and then from there 
bats would come and sweep and catch the the bugs in your headbeam light. So that was pretty amazing. <laughs> You're just standing in the bush having, well, the jungle having bats come feed <laughs> off the bugs that are that are swarming you. And on one occasion, I even was standing. I was watching a sloth, and there was um, a bat fell out of the sky and landed at my feet, which was unusual. And I looked at it, and it ended up it had a broken wing. But just because it happened to fall out of the sky right right where I was and I'd had my rabies shots going to um, work in Costa Rica, we were able to um, capture the, the little bat and take it back to the vet clinic to have surgery to help mend, mend its wing. That was a pretty, pretty special day in the field. <laughs> yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> So how did, I was going to say, how did you, how did you come from, I guess, go from sloths back to skinks? Right. Yes. So then I came back to Australia and back to Perth and was wondering where my path from honey possums to sloths would then get me. And um, so I was looking for jobs and I saw there was an advertisement for a PhD project with um, a place called the Centre for Mindsight Restoration. And it was a project where you got to study the ecology of an endangered species and work towards improving their management. And I thought that sounded really exciting. They had a big picture of the skink as part of the ad and I thought, well, if I have to work <laughs> on a reptile, that's a pretty cool-looking reptile to work on. Yeah. So I made the big jump. Uh, I, I responded to the ad and interviewed and ended up getting the PhD. Just uh, go, going back to the, uh, the, the, the spiny-tailed skinks, are they... Um... How, how many are actually left? I actually, um, so I've had a look and I can't find a population estimate, just um, records of where they used to be and now are. So mm -hmm. they're endangered and their numbers are decreasing, but a lot of the populations are on private property. So I don't think there is an actual overall estimate. We've, uh, we've come across that a few times before. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so, I mean, if, when you enter an area that, you know has them around like how how densely populated are they are they few and far between well then they're not um in close proximity they're an interesting lizard it's unusual for a reptile but they're actually a colonial species so they live mm. together within a family group and that's within a log pile so they have like a permanent log pile residence so once you find the log pile you know where the skinks are they're because they live there, you, you know how to find them. But the log piles are quite um, dis dispersed apart. Yeah. Cool. Wait, so my log pile, do you just mean? Yeah, sorry. So basically yeah. <laughs> a fallen tree with overlapping branches. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and so what's the, the, the drive for the, the colonial structure then? Is it maybe just that there's not many log piles around or is, it, is there something else to it as well? It seems to be within the genus Agurnia, there seems to be quite a lot of sociality in that genus compared to other, yeah. other types of reptiles. So I'm not sure what drives it, but um, they've done some studies on other types of Agurnia where they can recognise pheromones. So within, within a log pile, they don't even have to be the same family group. They can recognise how related they are to each other to prevent inbreeding, which is quite cool. Mm, yeah. But I think there's also quite limited resources because they live in semi-arid and arid areas, so probably living together 
and being close to whatever resources it is that they need is probably important. Do they do they form a sort of I guess social hierarchy? For the for the subspecies I'm working on, we don't even know how many um, live in a colony. It's, so oh, right. it's very. I had to start at the beginning, so yeah. looking at what they ate, what ate them, what's a good log pile. So for the Agernia stokesii in general, they know they can live, um, grow up to colonies of up to seventeen, but I've only seen up to six at my study site. So I think it's. Um, Mum, dad, and kids. I think that's the social structure. <laughs> but um, yeah, not actually sure yet. But it would be cool do, to find out. Do they bond then, or have long-term partners between? Yeah. The males so and the from other um, Agonia stokesii, they think they're monogamous. So they tend to breed mm-hmm. um, the same female and male. Mm. Right. That's so cool. So, what what do they actually feed on? What do they go out searching for? Well, that was one of my questions as well. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't properly answered it yet. I, I, um, I've undertaken some visual IDs of dissecting scats in the lab, but they're also currently looking at genetic analysis to see if I can ID particular plant species. But we weren't even sure if they were herbivores or omnivorous. So at least I can tell. They seem to be opportunistic. So some of their scats are filled with vegetation. Some will be um, big parts of a beetle. So it seems to be they'll eat vegetation if that's what's available. But if they happen upon a beetle or some ants, they'll eat that too. But what uh, I'm also interested in is luckily the the skinks, they're um, 20 centimetres in snout vent length about the adults and then the juveniles are quite distinctly smaller and so you can tell in the scats from size as well what's an adult scat what's a baby scat and so (laughs) I'm looking to see if there's um, a shift because in some reptiles the particularly in a colony the juveniles might just eat insects and the adults vegetation as a way of them being able to cohabit the same space and not compete for resources so I'm also hoping to answer that question but I'm not quite sure yet. Yeah, I, I love yeah. how it's kind of like it's it's really hard for you in a sense because there's so little known. But at the same time, is it kind of cool to be the one writing the textbook in a way and finding out these things that no one's written down before, I guess? Yeah, I think that was part of the draw for the project was that anything I find out is useful and I can start at the beginning and, and ask those basic questions and see what do they eat, what's their microhabitat structure, and it's it's all useful to their management. Um, what's the, can you, can you tell us a little bit about what their life cycle is like? Um, well, I know that they have bare live young. So, um, the poor females with the spiny tailed <laughs> skink babies, but they have, um, <laughs> so they have live young and then the young, they stay with the, the colony for up to three to five years. They won't think about, um, dispersing and forming another colony. But um, unfortunately, that's as far as I know. Hey, it's us again. And we're just cutting in to give a little bit more context on the next question we're about to ask. When we were emailing back and forth with Holly to get this interview organized, she sent through a bunch of photos, which was amazing. We love it when our guests are organized, <laughs> more organized than we are. Uh, and she sent through these photos of models she uses. She makes them out of plasticine and puts them out in the field to see what eats them. 
But when we asked her about this research, she reaches to her side and pulls up a couple <laughs> of models that she uses as demonstrations throughout this next bit. It's amazing. And uh, we were so stoked because anytime anybody brings models or toys in, it's going to be a great episode. <laughs> oh, it just isn't it the best. You don't need to see the visuals to understand what she's talking about. She's, she explains it very well. But if you do want to have a look at what the models look like and how she was talking about them, We've uploaded the full video of that to our YouTube and to our Instagram and to our Facebook if you want to check it out after. I have an example. Oh, <laughs> oh amazing. <that's> so, amazing. <laughs> so they're just the, um, the basic shapes, so they're not um, um, very artistic, but we just wanted to see for a predator that has um, that is a visual predator, so it detects that basic size and shape, what would attack it. So this is it's just made out of regular plasticine that you can buy from the shop but it's quite moldable. And then after that, it's a bit hard to tell, but the color's slightly different. So I covered it in red dirt from on site. It's gone a bit dark now, but it, um, because the skinks look to be camouflaged to the same color as the soil. So I put the right. soil on the, on the model to see, to um, represent the basic coloring too. And then I have an example here of a, um, a predator. <laughs> so this is um, not an actual predator of the skink. This is a raccoon skull. <laughs> so we'll pretend it's a predator, but basically if it attacks the model skink and leaves an imprint, you can then ID what predators have attacked the skinks just using um, ID of the bite and peck marks. So That's we wanted awesome. to do that because... Um, well, you can't use live skinks and they're, they're quite, <laughs> quite cryptic. I was unlikely to hide behind a bush and see one get eaten. So the next <laughs> best thing to figure out what would attack a skink is to make pretend ones, put them out in the bush. I made about 125 models and sat wow. them out in the bush and then we'd come back every day and re record what markings I saw and then you'd smooth down the models and then the next day get, get new recordings. Yeah. So you sent me some of, I think, a crow that had been having a go at one. Like, what what yeah. other species did you see in these imprints? Well, with the with the crows, they were quite savage. So they'd quite often it looked like they'd go for the head, remove the limbs and the tail. So sometimes all that would be left is a tail, just a chunk <laughs> of the tail of the model. And so they had a good. Good go. And I'd leave um, up to 15 models at one particular site and they'd um, have a go at one, couldn't eat it, then they'd go the next one and then the next one and they'd have a go at eating every single model. <laughs> so unfortunately <laughs> the crows affected my results a bit because they were the only thing that attacks my models except right. for rabbits. Um, one rabbits. of the photos I sent you, the, you can see there's the big teeth and then the mm -hmm. little teeth. So some rabbits had a good good go at nibbling the models. Really? So not a predator, but <laughs> an wow. interaction with the models. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're pretty good-looking models. How long do they take you to make? Uh, I had to um, bribe some friends with um, pizza <laughs> <laughs> and help me because they took forever. I ran out of time, so I just had to say, please, <laughs> I'll pay with you with pizza, just come in. We had, the uni had an open day too, and I um, 
at the stall, I was just recruiting people and rolling plasticine oh, at the stall. But yeah, longer than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> so were the, the ones that the crows had a crack at, were they the ones that got the most mangled? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, they wouldn't just like the rabbits who gave a little nibble and went, oh, mm-hmm. that's not food. They'd go, well, I'll kill this thing, take the head off, the limbs off and the tail off and then give it a good try and see if I can eat it. And then, <laughs> yeah, they were savage. But um, because no predators attack a non-moving object, that's why I put the cameras out in the field. And I also did some um, bird surveys to see if there were particular birds that hung around a log pile. Yeah. Yeah. The, the crows there and the corvids there historically, is that part of their natural range? Yeah, so there's the Australian raven, the Teresian crow and the little crow. And so they're all native to that area. But I surveyed um, at varying distances away from um, a mining area with the landfill. And it seems that um, around mine sites where there's artificial food sources that they can be overabundant. So even though they're native, they're still a problem predator that you have to deal with. So... Uh, a common day working like out in the field with these with these skinks, I assume quite a bit of it involves pl- placing these models. <laughs> but what else? Do, what else do you do on an average day? So one thing that I enjoyed as part of my project was that I got to try a whole um, range of different things. So there wasn't really an average day. <laughs> so sometimes it would be placing models, checking models, surveying birds. Um, I had to every three months for um, three years check um, change over camera batteries and they ended up being I think 400,000 hours of camera footage I had to check so that was a lot (laughs) (laughs) and then um, well I used a technology in a novel way so there's um, something called LiDAR which is light detection Mm. and ranging and it's usually a machine typically on a mine site you'd use it say attached to a plane or a drone and fly over an area and through um, the machine emits light pulses and from that the machine can measure distances and then um, map topography or structural characteristics of a waste rock dump say and for my project we wanted to see if we could use terrestrial LIDAR so at a small scale so it basically looked like a camera mounted on a tripod Um, use that to scan just the log piles and from that create 3D 3D images of the log piles and we scanned log piles that did have skinks and didn't have skinks to see if there were characteristics that um typically the skinks would choose. So that was really fun getting to use that technology in a novel way and playing on the computer with the LiDAR images was lots of fun. (laughs) And then um, for diet, it was a lot of picking up um, lizard poo in the the bush. (laughs) But it's lucky for me that the the colonies create latrines. So they have a little scat pile right outside the log. So they're really easy to find. And that's um, how you survey for the skinks because they're really shy and hide within the logs, but you can see a scat pile right next to it. <laughs> they literally have their own bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's very clean of them. <laughs> I mean, uh, the skinks would probably be there for quite a few generations. Can those pile up over time? 
Yeah, I think with the um, with the weather, they must disintegrate and erode because they weren't right. <laughs> massive piles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining but, um, this lizard having to crawl up the pile of its, you know, <laughs> grand- grandfather's latrine area. <laughs> no, luckily, I think they slowly disintegrate, so they're just okay. little piles. <laughs> uh, so back to your sort of field stuff, um, mm-hmm. do you have a particular day or like moment that just stands out as being your favorite day working with these skinks? Well, surprisingly, my favorite stuff was probably actually collecting the scats, but that was because (laughs) (laughs) that was because um, I had more time in the field and I could just sit by a log pile and gain the lizard's trust and then slowly all climb out of the hollows and bask in Mm -hmm. the sun. And I got to see the family structure of the massive adult or even um, pregnant females with the bulging tummy and the little young ones climbing all over them. So I found that quite special. But also being in the Midwest is um, wildflower country. So I enjoyed exploring. I'd be following the coordinates to a different log pile and then the bush would just open up into a wildflower meadow of paper daisies. And I found that was pretty amazing. Hey, we're back. Paper daisies. Alex, these sound like the cutest, most amazing little flowers. You looked them up. What what are they? So... I just love wildflowers in general because the idea that you're out in the desert somewhere, it's super arid, and then all of a sudden good conditions come along and it just explodes into this meadow of flowers is just amazing. And we'll throw up some photos of what these beautiful meadows look like to our socials. But the paper daisies are actually really cool because they look like a normal flower, but the petals are really tough. They're not like a normal petal where they're soft. They're actually oh. tough. <laughs> it's really cool. That's not what you think with the name paper daisy, is it? Nope. <laughs> it should be called cardboard daisy or something. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's plenty of time spent sniffing the flowers, so we'll get back into lighter. <laughs> um, can we talk about the, the lighter stuff for a minute? Just backtrack because I, it does sound like super cool that you're using this in this context. <laughs> like can you, what, what can you tell from LIDAR that you can't tell, you know, just by looking at a pile of logs, I guess. Yeah. So the cool thing about LIDAR is that by shooting the the lasers at the log and from all different angles and overlaying photograph imaging, it's to an accuracy of one centimeter resolution. Once you um, upload the data on the computer, you can get really accurate measurements of things. And by, um, I could splice the the um, 3D image into different layers and then get exactly the surface area cover of canopy or understory cover and measure the size of hollows and things. And something like that could be possible in the field, but to that accuracy, maybe not. And particularly Mm -hmm. the log piles being fallen trees can be attached to upright trees and they're really tall. So if I was to physically go out there and have to take measurements I might need massive <laughs> ladders and could take me weeks to just measure all the characteristics of a single log pile when the the little lidar machine has a reach of two kilometers so for us who we have no idea what makes an optimal log pile for this lizard it means we can get a really detailed measurement and say yes they have specific requirements or no they don't so that's what's been quite quite exciting about using that technology. And then hopefully it can be used for other cryptic species, which are hard to 
hard to study or watch and understand how they use their habitat, but it can hopefully be applied to help other endangered species. So does it look like they're kind of, are they picky home buyers with the logs they choose? (laughs) (laughs) I think um, still, still in the writing up process, there might be a few, um, few general things. Um, one of the main ones might be just the size of the long log complex because they're a family. You need enough hollows and crevice options that everybody can fit and be happy. So that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Looking for more mansion-sized logs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the biggest tree they can get. <laughs> um, do you have a particular day that's just been your least favourite day in the field or least favourite day working with skinks or just in conservation? Uh, For the skinks in particular, it was pretty tame again, but um, when I was there in the summer, it was over 47 degrees Celsius, so it was That doesn't sound tame. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a bit hard and working on a mine site, you have to be wearing steel cap boots, high-vis, long sleeves, Mm -hmm covered up so it's pretty hot work and then you'd have a swarm of thousands of flies just attached to you like a veil as you walk (laughs) that wasn't my favorite part but um the worst probably the worst one was in Costa Rica I was um was about three in the morning because the sloths are nocturnal so it was lots of night work um and I was watching a sloth and I was pretty tired so I decided put my rain poncho down on the ground and I decided to risk sitting on the jungle floor, which is probably a Mm no-no. And then um, I felt something on my wrist and I'm so used to swatting away mosquitoes and things, I swatted at it and then I felt a really sharp sting and I looked down and it was a scorpion the size of my hand was sitting inside my sleeve. And so I've realised, okay, it's just stung me. So I flung it and then I lost lost it and then it ended up I found it on my leg <laughs> had to swat it <laughs> off again and then and then I was like oh I don't actually know if um if they're lethal here <laughs> I don't know how dangerous that sting just was and then I felt my lips start tingling and I went okay probably probably not good so then I ended up walking back to base camp and one of the biologists she gave me like antihistamine cream and put that on the sting and said you'll probably be right and then my whole body started tingling like severe pins and needles and I went hmm not sure if not sure if I am right and so I'm busy texting in Australia my sister being like I just got stung by a scorpion and so she's busy googling and she's like oh, okay none are lethal you won't die <laughs> and meanwhile I'm walking back into the village where I'm staying and I meet my other bi- biologist friend and she's asking me the questions of are you okay and then so I went to bed I didn't finish my shift and then woke up again the next morning completely feeling pins and needles again all over my body but I just happened to have books scheduled in I had to have my third round of my rabies vaccinations when I was in Costa Rica. So I got to meet with the doctor and he could check me out and see that I was okay. But that, <laughs> that was probably my least favorite experience in the jungle. Fair <laughs> enough. That has got to be the most calm reaction I like ever to a scorpion stick. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it got to that point being in the jungle. Once I was just sitting sitting near the release cage and I saw a tarantula on my thigh and <laughs> just I was like, hmm, what's it? So just gently, gently flick it off with the water bottle and <laughs> nothing's happened here. <laughs> I would probably run screaming through the forest if I was anywhere near a trench. <laughs> um, I'd love to hear more about your research in like mitigation translocation. Sure. So mitigation translocation is the focus of my research, which is the removal of individuals away from an immediate threat. And so this is opposed to more general conservation translocations where your aim is to save an entire species. But mitigation translocations are, are mines going to clear or a development's happening. You've got individuals there and you need to move them to save them. So that's been, so for me, that's the skinks where a mine site's going to clear for ore extraction and they move the skinks. Hey, we're just so impressed with how her conservation journey has gone full circle. <laughs> it's just when we were listening to this in the interview, I was sitting there going, she's literally started with her like origin story strapped to her mum doing restoration work in gold mine <laughs> stuff on those volunteer days and has now come into doing her own restoration work on lizards in in coal mine sites like it just feels like such a beautiful little arc of a story doesn't it i guess come full circle <laughs> so great <laughs> stopped in with the honey possums went all the way to costa rica for some sloths and then found her way back home <laughs> to, to mine restoration i think it's great i love that following in the footsteps fantastic we'll let her get back to it and so i um did a literature review at the beginning of my research, which ended up being over 480 papers I had to look at. And then, <laughs> so that was huge, but then yep. <laughs> um, whittle that down to just mitigation translocations and then see what they're doing and how successful they are. And unfortunately, less than a quarter of them were successful, that recorded successful. So unfortunately, oh, wow. because compared to conservation translocations, there's a lot less time and planning put into them it tends to be a quick rescue move them and then there's no monitoring after as well to see how those individuals are going and see how we can improve for the future so what I found was that we really need to understand that if we're justifying say clearing for a development because we're translocating those animals we really need to understand that there is a commitment of um, planning, understanding what those animals' requirements are. Can the new habitat support new individuals? Is it the right habitat? Are there too many feral predators in that new space? Can they be supported? And then monitoring needs to occur to see if they actually survived so that we know for the future what's successful and what isn't. So it's, it's so there's a very big difference then. Conservation translocations are trying to move species to maybe somewhere that might it's going to be more conducive to i don't know re, reducing predators or keeping a closer eye on them but the mitigation translocations are specifically there's a big threat coming and they need to be moved pretty quick yeah right yes so i was understanding yeah is that is that successful at actually saving those individuals 
Yeah. yeah. And can you get us up to speed then on the site that you're working at now and the sort of backstory there? Yeah. So I'm working in the Midwest, where which is the area where the skinks occur. And there's quite a lot of mining in that area. And so if, because they're an endangered animal, the mines are required to move them out of the way uh, if, if they're clearing for ore extraction. And so the mine, the mine site I'm working with had tried a couple of times and then gone back and the skinks weren't there. And so they really wanted to understand why, why weren't we there? How can we improve the likelihood that they'll, they'll stay where we move them to and they'll actually survive? Because we don't know how many are left and the, the population numbers are lowering. We don't want to lose any more colonies. So they decided to work with the Centre for Mine Site Restoration where, where I am and um, through my project really investigate what do the skinks need, like an optimal log pile, where do we need to move them to? Or there's the option of once you remove as many individuals as you can, also moving physically moving the log itself to make sure you've got, you take that with you as well right. just in case you missed any. Moving the entire house. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, how far do they usually end up translocating them then? Is it like just sort of moving them across the hill or is it like do, do sometimes they have to get moved several kilometres? What sort of range do they get moved? At the moment, I think it's more of the as close as possible to the original site that's not undergoing clearing. So because they're pretty sure that's their general habitat requirements and so as close as possible, they'll move them to that area. But um, I was supposed to radio track them, but then we realised that um, they're a spiny skink and there's nowhere to put a tracker, <laughs> plus they live in a log and so putting a tracker anywhere on them where it won't stop them hiding within a tight crevice is quite hard. So I never got to track them, but one of the questions we were interested in was how far do they go and what home range do they need? But... There, it does look like in some areas that the skinks can't persist if the area is less than a hectare. They need bigger chunks of that bushland left. So I guess that's one of the biggest uh, ways to protect the skink is to keep as bigger intact areas as possible. Um, do you think that for, if it was something like a mammal, like a sugar glider or, or, or a pretty parrot, do you think that you would be needing to do this relocation or do you think that the mines would be just going somewhere else because they're obviously reptiles aren't as normally charismatic as other species? Do you think this is why that's that's the option? It's a good question. I think um, mining does tend to occur in locations, not necessarily just reptiles, but also more charismatic animals. But I think it could be a reason why we don't know anything about them. And I have to start at the beginning. A lot more charismatic animals um, are the focus of research. And we have to remember that reptiles are important too. Yeah. But it, it was a good thing that, um, that the species is endangered. So it was a requirement of the mine site that they you can't just clear where they are. You do have to move them. So that I think that was good. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah throughout my research... Um, I found Australia has about 10% of the world's reptiles, which is more than any other country in the world. But Australasia also has the least amount of um, threatened status defined. 
So we don't know of all the reptiles we have how many are threatened and there really does seem to be um, general community is quite biased against reptiles, particularly snakes, to the point where not only do we not care but there's antagonistic behaviours such as um, running over a snake on the road when you see them. So unfortunately we have to we get, have to get over that hurdle and to protect our species we need to understand more about them. So research of our, our reptile species I think is an important direction for the future. Mm. Definitely. With, I guess, such a low success rate and unfortunately with the species in decline and we don't really know how many are left, do you think that at least this subspecies will uh, make it through the next few decades or next like 20, 50, 100 years? I'm hopeful that they will. The, with the cultural significance and um, hopefully with my research, increasing knowledge of the species, mind sites being aware that you can't just flatten their habitat, you have to move them and then hopefully restore and recreate their habitat in the future. I'm quite hopeful. And um, I've talked to a few people in the Midwest and even if they're fussy with log piles, they seem to like um, scrap piles with um, corrugated iron and they find them (laughs) eating cat food out of their cat's bowl uh, on some farmers' (laughs) properties. So they're quite resilient. So in, in those pockets where they've been able to survive in even when there weren't log piles available, there was rubbish they literally had to survive and they could. So I think there's hope for the future that they will keep persisting. They can be quite tough. <laughs> that's that's good to hear. <laughs> not fussy about where they pick their homes. <laughs> <laughs> Should we get into the audience questions or did you have any other? Yeah, no, let's, let's go for that. Okay. Um, we'll kick it off with Sophie um, who wanted to know is their diet available at the new sites? Do you know if their diet's available at the new sites that they're getting moved to? So their habitat is known. They like open eucalypt woodland. You'd be moving them into the same habitat. So broadly the, the food types would match. But I'm hoping to figure out if there's a particular plant species that I found in a lot of their scats that this can help inform if we're going to move them to a log pile within that habitat, it should also be close to plants of this type. Cool. So I just have a question from Liz and she was wondering, do you know why their tails are spiny? (laughs) (laughs) So we think it's, um, it helps them lodge within, within a log hollow. When they get into a crevice, they can inflate it slightly and so it really helps them squish within the the log crevice oh, wow. and not be able to be pulled out by a predator. So it That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's why. Yeah. Anti predator. <laughs> um, and we got another one from um, Cassie who wants to know like what sort of research and testing gets done into figuring out what areas are most suitable to move the lizards into when they are getting translocated? So for this particular lizard, the testing, that that's me. <laughs> so that's where <laughs> I've come in. So <laughs> we're just figuring out what they eat, what logs they need and, um, yeah, what predator management needs to be done. Um, Cass also had another question. It's a bit ridiculous, but 
asking that. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to know, are they cuddly? <laughs> No, I wouldn't say they're cuddly. They're quite shy. <laughs> As I told you earlier, I got excited just being able to sit next to a log pile and then slowly come out <laughs> and sit next to me. <laughs> so compared to the cuddly honey possums that I got to hold and warm up as they slowly <laughs> came out of torpor, these guys I just get to admire from afar. <laughs> Fair enough. Do they? How do they interact with like family members? Do they? Do they have a fight or anything like that? Well, somebody I was uh, another biologist I know mentioned they um, saw a, a spiny tail. I can't remember what species from Eastern Australia, and he said he had video of two of them fighting, really going at each other. <laughs> but I, I hadn't seen that at all. I just saw there was. Um, the little baby would climb over the mum, cling onto its back. That's about the level of interaction I saw. That's still, still pretty, pretty cute interaction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I, I have one of my own that I want to ask based on those photos you sent me because on one of them it was um, the, it, it had been pretty mangled in the core, um, the, the plasticine model you had. Do you – do they go – did the predators go for the middle of the lizard because they've got that – they have the defense mechanism of like the 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 back looks the same as the head, but it, do you, do you see the predators go for their middle a lot because that's like you know the safer option of all well, the front and the back look like a head, so I'm just going to go split the difference and go for the middle. Yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, in some of them it really was the middle, but for some of the other corvids it was. We, I'm just going to take the head and the tail off and the limbs and then <laughs> it should be dead by then. <laughs> so I think they have a yeah, number of different Dara. strategies, maybe because they go for all the models at the site. They, they try different things for each one. <laughs> Something must work. Um, well, we might get into the, the wrap-up questions if you want to kick it off, Alex. Yeah, definitely. Um, so if, uh, if people wanted to get involved uh, or help out, um, with the spiny-tailed skinks, what would you recommend? Because um, I'm just beginning research into understanding what they need, there's not a particular conservation group for the spiny tail in particular. But what I would say if you did want to contribute to conservation would be to remember that to either volunteer or donate and support not only the most charismatic, fluffy creatures out there, but remember that... Um, <laughs> Reptiles and lizards are important too, so get involved with that. And even um, in your local communities. So I've, for the last two years, been on an environmental advisory committee for my local city. And so you can be involved with helping helping understand and also influencing actions on preservation of uh, vegetation and ecosystems around around urban areas and conserve conserve the species that are living in your own area, but also be educated and um, do your reading, do your research and understand what, what the issues are and what what species or what areas we should be protecting and fighting for. Cool. Um, do you, and just following up with that, do you have, obviously, yeah, there's no groups that are that specific, but are there any sort of reptile uh, conservation groups that you could recommend? I don't actually know any particular ones. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's so no, sad right. that they're just not fair. there. Like this is, this is why I kind of, why we wanted to do this episode because it's just like, I'd never heard of them before and, and um, they're an endangered, yeah, me you know, one of, one of the endangered species in the country. And I feel like we should know more about them. Yeah. 
So if anyone wants to start, start creep, I'm all for it. <laughs> um, and then the last thing we'd want to ask is, um, do you have any one, if you had one message uh, to sort of send people home with um, about conservation, about the skinks in, in specific, in particular, if you want to, um, what would that message be, do you think? Um, I guess what I was just saying, if you're passionate about conservation, you can be involved. It doesn't doesn't have to be a particular species or um, donating a lot of money, but volunteer your time or um, work towards volunteering in your local area and protecting protecting the bushland. I, I think for many species, important is just conservation, protection, and managing those sites. So if you can get involved with that, yeah, cool, and just getting more more interest into reptiles. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I move from mammals to reptiles. Other people can too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. It's been awesome chatting to you. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. It was great. Episode 8 of Life on the Brink was produced on the lands of the Turrbal, Yagara and Garingai people. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thanks again to Holly for all the spiny skink speak. We'll be posting plenty <laughs> of skinky goodness on our socials, so if you're interested in learning more, check them out. And if you're getting tired of our questions, getting really annoyed because they're super stupid, that's cool. Jump on Instagram. We pretty consistently ask if the audience has any questions they want us to put forward. So give us a follow at Life on the Brink podcast. Remember also to follow and leave a review for Life on the Brink on whichever app you're listening to this on. The first seven editions of Life on the Brink are out wherever you're hearing this. If you've missed any of those, you can check them out or you can also find them at lifeonthebrinkpodcast.com. Thanks to Angus Bazina for getting that website up and running. Thanks to Kyle Morley for our theme music. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. And we're sorry because we know you might miss us, but we'll see you in two weeks. (laughs) 